Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is J.P. Holding, and he's come on the show to talk about a timely book, very important, uh, one week after Easter. title of his book is Defending the Resurrection, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? And this is not his only book. He's written 20 books. I'm going to list some of the titles, but he's written Easter is Pagan and Other Fables. Also, What in Hell is Going On? Scripture and Slavery. Also, Jesus was a mushroom and other lies you won't believe. The best evidence for Jesus, blood, moon, lunacy, and Christian answers to this generation's questions. And there's a bunch of others. He's addressed the Jesus myth in a series of books. Um, his ministry and website can be found at www.tectonics.org, and I will list that in the show notes. So you can see all his writing and, and his activities. He's done a lot of work. Um, in Christian apologetics. And again, we're going to talk about this book, Defending the Resurrection, that uh, he's written a lot of, and there's other guests who've written sections of the book. So um, he can talk more about that. So J.P. Holding, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Great. Thanks so much for having me on tonight, William. It's great to be here. Excellent. Well, thanks for agreeing. And so for people who may not have heard your name, your work, you've written, you, you said you were involved in the internet before it was the internet. Maybe you can talk where it all started and how you came up with 20 books, right? All right. Well, um, my degree is in uh, library science, uh, so I'm a librarian by training, and that means more than just I know how to tell people to be quiet. Uh, it means I know how to do research, how to find answers to people's questions, and it's something I really enjoy doing. And to fill in the blanks on that, the internet before was the internet. Um, I was in school uh, back in the early 90s uh, when the internet was still mostly a military application, but when things like bulletin boards were just starting to be the rage, and uh, I learned how to use uh, databases that worked just like Google uh, before Google existed, uh, using various search methods to find answers to people's questions and specialty areas. And so I had somewhat of a head start uh, before many people had access to the internet, uh, learning how to use the tools that were associated with it. And so along with the specialty and love of doing research, that came came uh, writing books on uh, answering people's questions and addressing arguments that I saw out there. And um, it's just gone on from there. I just love to write. And I just love to do research. And all those yeah. books is the result. Gotcha. And when was the first book that you wrote? What's the date? When did you start writing? Well, uh, probably the earliest of any sort may have may have been uh, if I'm, th I'm thinking back through the dates here it was probably uh the mormon defenders yes the mormon defenders and mormon defenders was written before you could do electronic publishing so i sort of had to do it the old-fashioned way at the time uh which is i had to uh actually go with a publisher that printed the books on paper and you know, some young people may not have heard of books on paper but that's uh that was the way it used to be done. And I still have a few copies of that book hanging around here somewhere. Um, and I recently uh, did a video series uh, based on it. Uh, Mormonism has changed so much since that date. I actually, uh, yes, I published that one in 2001. So that was the very first book out of all the ones that I put together. So that's 20, over 20 years ago, you started writing. And you've covered a lot of these kind of maybe fads you could call them, or trends in Christianity, because I've heard people make the arguments that Christianity was influenced by mushroom taking 
and then the blood moon stuff. So you've addressed kind of those, those kind of maybe popular topics, maybe, right? It's it's fair to say that I've often addressed topics that no one else will touch because they're just they just don't want to jump into it. Uh, it just seems like so much trouble to jump into it. And uh, you alluded to the uh, mushroom thesis, and that particular book was about conspiracy theories. Uh, many people uh, don't want to talk about conspiracy theories or look into them or do the hard research necessary. And I can understand why, uh, because just to use an example uh, from a similar topic, uh, that of the idea that Jesus was stolen from pagan gods. The story of Jesus was an imitation of other pagan deities, like, for example, Mithra. Uh, now, some of these uh, critics will say, for example, that uh, like Jesus, Mithra was crucified and uh, rose from the dead. And the thing is, unless you really like digging in old, musty volumes in libraries, you're not going to find easy answers to a question like that. Uh, you would have to find some really obscure books out there by experts in Mithraism in order to find a refutation to something like that. Uh, that's something I enjoy doing, though. And the answer to that, by the way, is that Mithra never actually died, so of course he never rose from the dead either. Uh, but then some of the more obscure facts claimed about him are that he had 12 disciples. It takes a long time and a lot of digging to find out that the mistake made by the critics on that one is that there is a picture of Mithra surrounded by the 12 figures of the Zodiac, and that's not disciples. So just a lot of digging, but it's the kind of digging I enjoy doing. Right, and that was a big, I think there was a documentary series that made, that was very popular, that made that allegation that Christ was, uh, you know, uh, something that came out of the old Egyptian or pagan pagan culture, so yeah. Yeah, you're talking about Zeitgeist? Uh, Zeitgeist, thank you, yeah. I <laughs> um, so, you've written a lot, you've written about Mormonism, I'm actually going to do a show on the occult more occult involvement in Mormonism on this Friday, actually, which there's a lot there. Maybe I should check out your book actually uh, <laughs> as part of it, but um, maybe you can just come back to, uh, you know, your ministry and why you put together this particular book, Defending the Resurrection. All right. Well, the ministry, uh, the website that you mentioned earlier uh, began that sometime. I actually began on the internet in 1996 with another gentleman who had a website called the Christian Apologetics Bookshelf. And uh, at some point, I believe he just decided to retire. And he said, well, I'm just going to give you all this website material here. You can take it. Uh, I had I knew nothing about HTML language or how to use it. I had to learn that on the fly. I had to do my own redesign uh, from, from scratch, so to speak. And I ended up buying the domain name tectonics.org. Uh, uh, because tecton.org was taken by a Greek travel ministry. Uh, I ended up with Tectonics, and uh, the website has grown in that time to have uh, thousands of articles uh, written mostly over a 10-year span, starting in about 2000, uh, 1998 to 2005. Um, in between that time, I also uh, wrote a number of freelance articles for the Christian Research Journal. It's a Hank Hanegraaff's uh, journal. Uh, from the Christian Research Institute. Um, in particular for defending the resurrection, well, um, since the resurrection is at the heart of Christian belief, that's something that inevitably I would have to address. I mean, I would have to investigate and do some reporting and addressing of arguments on that subject. Uh, most of what's in the book is uh, 
compiled from articles that I wrote and which were updated for the book in the most cases and uh, from the years like 2000 to 2010. And then some of the guest art, there were a number of guest articles as well from people who were readers of my website or um, those who assisted me in various ways or had interest in the subject. And so the Defending the Resurrection was the uh, third in a series of books uh, that I call the Building Block Series. The first one was one you alluded to earlier that had to do with the idea that Jesus never existed as a human being. Uh, that one was called Shattering the Christ Myth. The second in the series was called Trusting the New Testament and dealt with the issue of the reliability of the transmission of the New Testament uh, in, in writing, uh, not having to do with the history, history of it itself, but just with the transmission of the text, so to speak, and the transmission of the history. And then Defending the Resurrection was the third in that series and it turned out the final one in that particular series. Gotcha. And maybe we can talk a little bit for people who don't know the Jesus myth was part of kind of a, a movement to reevaluate, right? It was kind of an intellectual movement in the academy or in academia to kind of question the validity of the New Testament, right? Is that right? It, it, I would call this an extreme uh, parts of academia, not necessarily people who were experts. Uh, the original uh, modern person who was into that theory was G.A. Wells. Uh, and he has since, uh, since that time, he's uh, sort of relapsed into a position that, well, maybe Jesus did exist as a human being after all. Uh, there, are still, there are still a number of people around who are promoting that theory. I, I don't need to go through a catalog of names, but there are uh, two general theories that they promote one is the idea that the New Testament itself attests to the idea that Jesus never existed in as much as it is felt that it doesn't give enough details in the letters, such as Paul's, about Jesus. And uh, that they, perhaps in, in mind of Paul, it is supposed Jesus was just some sort of uh, sky-high being, uh, not someone who actually walked the earth. And then the other uh, brand of the theory is one we've already alluded to. That's the idea that the story of Jesus was stolen from pagan myths. And so someone took a little Mithra here, a little Dionysus there, and smashed it all together to make Jesus. Right. And then the, there's always, there's this kind of movement that I've heard from other people, which is that the actual story of the New Testament was created or fabricated by uh, the Flavian dynasty to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that that's taken seriously. I've you know, had interviews with people that's what they really believe i'm not going to name the author but they really think that this was created for political reasons that the the new testament and the validity of the transference of the information which is the second part of your series is not it's fake that it's actually a narrative that was created yeah i, I remember the what you're talking about very well the piece of theory uh, i believe it was one version of it uh, i did write an article about that uh, that was that was one was enough for me uh, There's so many other variations of that from so many different people. It was a conspiracy based on some other uh, particular ideal, ideological movement. Um, they're, they're just a dime a dozen, and they all contradict each other. Oh, interesting. And but so, what is your? I mean, the validity. We know that Peter's one of his disciples wrote. Was it uh, John? Wrote one of the statements saying that he was. He was uh, converted by Peter, right? Isn't that one of the early right earlier writers? I don't know if you remember that author. No, I don't remember that one. No. Okay, yeah, um, but I, I think that there are people in the first century who knew the apostles, and they have their writing done. 
that's a whole that's outside of we're trying to get to i'm trying to get to defending the resurrection sorry i'm getting uh tangents but so i think we're just one week after easter can you talk about kind of what is in this particular book Okay, well, this book is uh, set into five different sections. I'll just briefly describe each section. Uh, section one is the exegetical basis uh, for an arguments for the resurrection. That's addressing various uh, interpretations of the New Testament, which are supposed to show that uh, the, the New Testament itself does not teach that Jesus was bodily resurrected. And so, for example, you have some that say that Paul taught a, quote, spiritual resurrection, that Jesus just rose like some kind of ghost. Um, and you have those who say that the resurrection accounts were borrowed uh, from the Old Testament in some way and just rewritten versions of the Old Testament. Uh, another question we address in there, one of my guest authors, is whether or not Jesus actually predicted his death and resurrection. So it's just dealing with uh, matters of biblical interpretation that affect uh, how we understand the resurrection as presented in the New Testament. Section two is called the philosophical basis, and it's rather the shortest uh, section. Uh, just discuss some of the claims about um, things like whether the resurrection violated natural law and uh, whether there's sufficient um, evidence in legal terms to decide that the resurrection occurred. And, much, and uh, another thing I discuss in there is the idea that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The third section is called the ideological basis, and that looks at some, uh, it's sort of a potpourri of various ideas, uh, such as why would God even bother resurrecting Jesus? What did it mean uh, to, to the people of the first century? And also uh, whether the resurrection was stolen from the from Zoroastrianism, whether uh, the New Testament got the idea from the Zoroastrian religion. Section four is the longest, and I would say the most unique uh, product that I put together. Uh, it's what I call the social basis. And uh, it grew out of a, a, a smaller sec article I wrote called The Impossible Faith, in which I analyze the social world of the New Testament and argue that because of the nature of Christianity and the nature of the first century world, it would have been impossible for anyone to come to believe in Christianity at that time unless there had been sufficient evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And just to use a particular example, uh, the idea of a crucified man. So many people today, when they see Jesus on the cross, they, they think, oh, that poor man, what did he do to deserve that? Or they, they think, uh, you know, they think that he was suffering. Even if they, even if you don't believe what Jesus was the Son of God or divine in any way, many people will feel sorry for Jesus when they see him on the cross. But that's not how people of the first century would have thought about someone like that. To them, someone on the cross had died a terrible and shameful death, and most likely because they deserved it. And you needed to have a good explanation for why it was not a shameful event, as opposed to something that you feel sorry about. And I also make, uh, draw comparisons to other hist uh, social bases uh, in the first century, such as the idea of resurrection itself uh, being something that was um, not accepted widely. The Jewish belief at the time was that the resurrection would occur at the end of history. And uh, there was no idea of just one person especially being resurrected out of order, so to speak. Right. So they weren't expecting the Jews, even after Christ, they're still looking for the resurrection at the end of time, right? And I think you, you use in your book the examples from the Old Testament, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a couple of things that I address, because, uh, of course, some people will point to examples from the Old Testament that they think are resurrections, but they're not. And, and the Old Testament itself uh, indicated that there wouldn't 
that there would just be a general resurrection at the end of time. There wasn't any word about one particular person being raised. And uh, the last section in the book uh, called The Historical Basis, I addressed as a potpourri of various ideas, uh, such as the, you know, the, the idea that Jesus just sort of didn't die on the cross, but just swooned and was uh, revitalized uh, later on by someone uh, looking to the idea that the body was stolen, that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. And I get really, really into the crazy stuff with the idea that Jesus had an evil twin uh, that stole the body and then pretended to be the risen Jesus himself. I've heard that one. Some some famous people believed in that one. There's yeah. all kinds of really uh, crazy stuff out there. And I mean, it really, you have to take it away. You can't really believe in the actual narrative of the new, of the gospels, right. To come up with these ideas. You will have, you will have to in some way add to it or subtract from it. Um, it's, it's pretty much a given that you have to do that, which is understandable understandable right even and, one that's reasonable you have to do that right and so the um like th there's an issue of whether i think in the very beginning you kind of is was christ resurrected in spirit or was he resurrected in body i think that's an important question about the resurrection because people think christ was just spiritual resurrection right yeah, that's the general idea. Uh, they, that's the, the point of this so-called spiritual resurrection argument. It's the idea that when uh, Paul describes what happened in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he's saying that Jesus was risen only in some sort of spiritual form. Uh, now it's, it's hard to go into great detail on this. There's so many different aspects that are brought to the fore. Uh, but when you look at the specific words used by Paul and how he uses them, uh, he makes it quite clear that he's referring to a physical body. And moreover, uh, in the Judaism of the time, there simply was no such idea of a, quote, spiritual resurrection. The word resurrection specifically meant the body uh, it's coming to coming back to life. It did not ever mean some sort of spiritual thing going on. Um, and interestingly, this relates to another idea I put later on in the book. Um if the disciples had seen someone they thought was Jesus uh, after he died, uh, because of what I mentioned earlier about the belief that resurrections would not occur until the end of time, uh, and because of this idea of what a resurrection actually was, if they had seen someone who looked like Jesus walking around after he had died, uh, they would have assumed that it was his guardian angel, uh, because they had a belief that um, your guardian angel was a essentially a duplicate of you. And so that kind of that answers uh, one of the verses that's sometimes used in this respect. They, it's where Luke says, well, they thought they saw a spirit. Uh, when they saw the risen Jesus the first time, they thought, well, that must be his guardian angel. And you can even see that belief alluded to in the book of Acts uh, after Peter is presumed to have been dead. And he comes knocking at the door and the girl says, Peter's at the door. And they said, oh, no, it's his angel. That's that uh, particular Jewish belief being referred to. And that's also what anyone seeing someone who looked like Jesus walking around would have assumed as from the first as well. Right. And that's how we get the whole story of doubting Thomas, right? That's the whole story about the doubter of the apostles. It's related to that. It's related. Yes. He couldn't yeah. believe that this was a person in body. 
Right. 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 There were a lot of reasons. And it's not because he didn't believe in miracles. I mean, he was he was a Jewish person. They believed that God had created the world with a snap of his fingers, so to speak. So he had no reservations about believing that God could raise people from the dead. He knew that, that God would do that, just not at that particular time. Right. And then you think you point out something interesting about the Jewish tradition that is pre and post Christ, which is the ossuaries and the, the saving of bones for burial to prep for that ending resurrection, right? Yes, that's exactly why they preserve the bone. Well, assuming you were wealthy enough, of course. I mean, the, the, the poorest people, they, they, there was nothing much they could do. Um, they had no way to preserve the bones that way. But the very wealthy people, yes, they had this ability uh, that allowed them to put the body inside a tomb, and they would do uh, seemingly contrarily what they could to, like, keep the body preserved as long as possible but they knew eventually it would rot away and you'd just leave the bones at some point maybe a year later you'd go inside the tomb and you'd collect the bones and put them in that ossuary which is like a box you might say and uh, you'd put the bones in there and then put that back in the, back in the tomb and wait for the resurrection to happen yes right and so that's kind of important part of the gospel narrative is Christ being taken into can't remember the rich guy who put him into that tomb, right? And then yeah. Yeah. the Romans yeah. wanted to guard it because the leading uh, Pharisees of that time said, you know, these guys, these followers are going to do something and make it make it sound right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Joseph and Nicodemus were the two people. It was Joseph's tomb, and Nicodemus was assisting. Now, that's interesting that you would refer to that as well, uh, because that relates to another aspect of why the guard was at the tomb in the first place. Um, yeah. One of the things that they would have been concerned about in particular, uh, and this relates to that whole aspect of crucifixion that I referred to, in order to enforce the shameful uh, sentence of crucifixion and ensure that it stayed shameful, one of the things they would want to stop people from doing was coming to the tomb to uh, venerate Jesus or to mourn him. And so likely one of the reasons why the guard was set in the first place was not simply to prevent any theft per se, not necessarily just that, but also to stop anyone from coming to the tomb to mourn and thereby give Jesus some degree of honor that was taken away from him in the view of, in the view of others by being crucified. Right. So that's very important that the story, the roll away of the, the rolling away of the stone and there's no body there. Right. So that second skin theory, which you mentioned in your book, based upon the gospel narrative can't be true, right? Yeah, that, that's one of the reasons why that wouldn't work out. And um, so, the, yeah, the involvement of honor here is just so important. And um, yeah, I also note as well that uh, I don't believe that the disciples were expecting Jesus to be resurrected precisely because of what I mentioned earlier. There was no belief that a single person would rise from the dead. Now, the words used to describe what Jesus predicted would happen are kind of uh, general in sense. They could refer to someone like standing up from a chair. What I think the disciples were expecting to happen, and there's some degree of this found in the way Peter and John react in the Gospel of John, I believe they were expecting Jesus' body to ascend into heaven, sort of like um, you know, Moses has had or like some of the other Jewish heroes. And so when they when they heard him say initially, I will be raised I will be raised from the dead, their thought was, oh, he means he's, his body's going to ascend. And that's why um, because they seem like they don't on when they see that he's physically risen from the dead. It's not what they were expecting at all. We're, right. So they're not expecting this. And 
but sorry, please continue. Yeah, and so in turn, it, it addresses an argument that while well, they were just uh, psychologically fooled into thinking that Jesus would rise from the dead, and they believed that it happened. If anything, they did not believe that Jesus was going to be resurrected. There was no basis for that. They believed that his body would ascend. So, in, in effect, they were surprised by what by what happened. Right, and so they're they're in shock. They don't expect that. And it, you in the Old Testament, he's he's. Christ is saying, he said very mysterious things that people couldn't uh, interpret until the whole gospel story was told, right? Or was told. Yes, and that that was not unusual. I mean, in their social world, the idea was you didn't share things with the outs people outside your own group, uh, otherwise they might subvert what you're doing. Uh, so you you made it sort of vague in a way, but it became more clear after everything was over with. That's that wasn't that unusual. Gotcha. Right. So he said, "I will take this temple and be in there." Yes. Read it. Right. So he's. That's a good example. Right. Yes. Um. So those are kind of some of the the stories about the, the narrative itself and some of the ideas that are out there. When you talk about the philosophical basis of the resurrection, what what kind of standards of evidence or context do, do you do you look into during that inquiry? I think most most fascinating. Um, thing that I looked at in terms of philosophical basis is about the idea of whether the resurrection violated natural law. Um, and that's a very common refrain that I hear uh, over and over again. It comes from uh, Hume years ago, uh, back in the 1700s, but it's still around today. It's still fresh. Um, there was another uh, author named, oddly enough, Ehrman, not Bart, Bart Ehrman, but Ehrman, John Ehrman, who uh, wrote a book about this called Hume's uh, Hume's abject failure. That's it. And this was one of the main sources I used, along with a couple of others, uh, discussing the idea that the resurrection violated natural law. Um, the assumption is uh, that there's a big difference between natural and supernatural, but that's a dichotomy uh, that was invented much later in time. It was not something that uh, people of the, the biblical period would have believed in. For them, everything was natural. I mean, they look at it this way if God picks up a box, is that that's considered a miracle. Why? I mean, if we pick up a box, we're not violating the law of gravity, so why should God be violating the law of gravity when he picks up a box? It's just not, there's just no differentiation to be made between natural and supernatural. And so the resurrection itself can hardly violate natural law because there's no such thing as violating natural law, so to speak, when you do something like the lifting up of the box. You're not violating the law of gravity. It's just God acting in nature like anyone else. Gotcha. So, um, so that's, and you uh, mentioned like what, there's a, 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 maybe you can talk about the legal basis for evaluating the evidence. I mean, what, what can you find in the Gospels, in the New Testament that would validate the resurrection? Okay. Well, now that chapter was written by one of my guests, uh, W.R. Miller, and um I, I would, so I could just sort of summarize it. Um, he would, he drew back on some of the, uh, older apologetics that uh, drew on from the legal field. And so he would uh, like compare the witness testimony uh, given in the Gospels, and he would compare it to like the requirements for uh, legal testimony in modern courts. Uh, that's that's how Mr. Miller took care of that. Gotcha. Uh, and I mean, what was the, what's the whole, I mean, Paul, you mentioned in the intro of the book, Paul says, if Christ wasn't resurrection, then 
the faith of Christ, Christian is in vain, right? So yeah. what's the purpose of the resurrection in, okay. in God's plan, really? Well, ultimately, uh, it was a demonstration uh, reversing the shame of the crucifixion. Um, as I was describing earlier, the cru a crucifixion was considered a very shameful death, and it was something enforced by the authorities of the time, as you said earlier, by the, by the Sadducees and also by the Pharisees. It was their way of saying, this man is worthy of death. Um, the resurrection was God's way of saying, uh, no, he wasn't, and um, your whole process of condemning him and shaming him was totally incorrect. So that was the main purpose. Uh, you know, and it, there's a lot more detail I could go into. We don't really have time for it at the moment, but it would have to do with the um, the whole idea of the Christian covenant as what would be called a client-patron agreement uh, in their time, uh, basically an agreement uh, to live according to the covenant that uh, God presents and for which Jesus is the broker. Right. So it's an example for everybody, right, saying that, that if that's the core, then... The resurrection is something in the future for all Christians or all people, right? Yeah, because you assume as becoming part of the body of Christ uh, in their society, which was focused on the collective experience of all the people who are part of the group, uh, if Jesus was resurrected, then eventually you would be as well. Of course, uh, it's, it clarifies uh, we are to imitate Christ, and uh, we, we would in the same way by being resurrected as well. Gotcha. And... Uh, what else, like, when you talk about, I mean, is there anything else in the book? There's a lot more information. We probably covered only half of it. I mean, what else would you like, if somebody, when somebody gets this book, what else can they expect to find? Well, uh, we'll find, too, uh, I'll, let me go a little background here. Okay. Um, the original uh, portion, uh, version of the book was simply an article, which was what is in section four, the social basis, and a mix of other articles from my website. I collated those together, and section four became a small uh, food for thought kind of book called The Impossible Faith, uh, which, which only summarized the social basis uh, for arguing for the resurrection. Uh, there were some people who um, disagreed with that. There was a fellow that I ran into on a forum who uh, hired an, an atheist to write a rebuttal to that uh, small book and he paid him five thousand dollars for it and uh, i went ahead and uh, included answers to that uh, critic in uh, section four of defending the resurrection and so uh, what you'll basically find though is a systematic uh, examination of those five aspects that i mentioned earlier uh, exegetical philosophical ideological social and historical uh, so this would, in, in that sense, cover all the traditional sort of arguments you expect on the resurrection, such as, you know, what was the body stolen? But I also approach it from an entirely different perspective. Um, although I had seen bits and pieces of what I've, I put in the social basis section, uh, I believe this is the first time anyone has ever put those together into a systematic defense of the resurrection as a historical event. Interesting. And uh, JP, do you have time to take a few questions from the listener? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, one, great. Thank you. One, one of them is from Oswald. He asks, has JP read Skirbina's Jesus book? I don't uh, I've never even heard of that, so I can go ahead and look that up. And uh, yeah, I, I'm very particular about what books I'll read anymore. I will only read books that are by credentialed scholars. Uh, if it's by someone who's not uh, a scholar, I'm probably not going to bother with it. I see this person as a professor of philosophy. That has me questioning whether he would 
what kind of book he's writing. Um, I might, I'll go ahead and mark it and have a look at it and see if it's something I might. Is this uh, the Jesus hoax? Um, I don't. That's already got. That's already got me saying no way. Uh, so, but uh, maybe I'll, it has a way to look inside. Maybe I'll have a peek and one. I'll tell you what my test will be. Um, okay. If I don't know if I can search in the book right now. Um, the, the mention of Jesus by Tacitus is one of the most re reliable references. We, ha In fact, the most reliable reference we have, I would say. I will test and see uh, what he says about Tacitus, if he's, whether he buys into the crazy arguments that I've seen or whether he takes it seriously. And based on how he treats that, that, may, that will help me decide whether or not I want to bother with it or not. Gotcha. Have you read Joe Atwell, Caesar's Messiah? I have, I have, and I have an article on it on my website. Um, it's been ages since I've read it, though, so I don't remember a whole lot about it, but I do have an article on it. Atwell did respond, I think, some years later, and I responded in turn. But, yeah, I do have – I don't remember if he commented on the resurrection specifically. I don't think he did. Uh, I think his main concern was simply to show that all these – alleged parallels existed that supported his idea that the idea that the new testament was a rewrite of some sort of uh bowlerized roman history right yeah yeah i've heard that and kind of a little bit off topic but what are your thoughts about the dead sea scrolls uh there's nothing special about them in terms of like what many of the conspiracy theorists say uh, i've heard that many of them i understand many of them are like old old testament and uh, that they support uh, the uh, text of the Old Testament as we understand it. That's certainly an excellent thing. Uh, there's certainly useful information on one particular sect of Judaism from that time. Gives us a lot of information on that particular sect. Uh, so, yeah, I, definitely a good resource. Very good thing to have found. Gotcha. And what? Uh, where's the best place to look at all your writing? What's your uh, uh, website again? Uh, tectonics.org t-e-k-t-o-n-i-c-s dot o-r-g so make sure you put in o-r-g because if you put in dot com you'll get some guys that build bridges they don't want to answer your questions about jesus gotcha. no, we don't want that and is that the best place for people if they want to reach out to you ask you any questions or anything like that yeah yeah i've got a couple of places there where you can uh, click to for an email address and that'll that'll come to me and do you have any books that are coming out? I mean, you've written so many books. Are you working on anything that will be published in the near future? Um, we are. I am working on a uh, – I'm almost done with an update to one of our books I wrote with uh, Nick Peters uh, called Defining Inerrancy. Uh, well, <laughs> that's worth a talk about the background of that one. Uh, back in 2014, um, I was involved in a dispute between uh, Christian scholar Mike Lacona, who has written an excellent book on the resurrection, and uh, – the Christian apologist Norman Geisler, and it has to do with the interpretation of the new of the Bible and how to understand the inerrancy of the Bible. Uh, Geisler's idea was more of what I would call a fundamentalist view, uh, whereas Lacona held to a view more like mine, which is a contextualized view, understanding in terms of the history and the background. And um, I got involved in that uh, debate, and so Nick and I uh, wrote Defining Inerrancy to help uh, frame that debate. And since uh, Norman Geisler passed away in 2019, we decided it was a good time to s sort of update that book. And we're hoping to have that out sometime in the next month. Okay. Well, I look forward to taking a look at that. Is that Thank the best place to buy books? Can they buy 
signed copies of your books from your website? <laughs> well, uh, since most of my books are ebooks now, uh, <laughs> can't really sign them. Uh, but yeah, I'll be glad to print out a page and sign it and mail it to them. <laughs> gotcha. But so then the best place is Amazon, or do you have other websites where you sell your ebooks, or is it Amazon no, the best? No, just Amazon is the best one. Yeah. Gotcha. And you have links on your website to those Amazon books because I know yeah. that you have kind of a different name. And so not all your books show up in one spot, right? Except yeah. on the website. Yeah, that's the best place to find them. I will feature one in particular on the front page and I'll feature some on the side of some of the articles. Um, yeah, so. Great. And is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we end the interview? Um, the only other book I'd like to note um, that I wrote, uh, which, I, which I'm particularly uh, glad about, uh, was called Hitler's Christianity. Uh, that was one where I did some, I think, investigation of a type that's not been done before uh, because so many people uh, assume that uh, I looked into Hitler's original uh, belief system and he, there was actually sort of a cult at the time in Germany called, that went by positive Christianity. And it was pretty clear that that's the kind of Christianity uh, Hitler believed in. Uh, but so many people don't recognize that because they don't understand some of the illusions um, that Hitler made uh, when he was speaking and some of his followers made when they were writing and speaking. It was really a fast. It was really a fascinating topic to look into. I was I was enjoy. I enjoyed that one very much. Was it your view that he was a Christian, or was he just using some of the ideology for his for his ideas? Closer to the second, and uh, one of the things that I also addressed was this idea that Hitler was an occultist, which is also not true. Uh, he wasn't the least inter least interested in that. Hmm, interesting. Do you another question for Mister Regents, dude? Uh, did was Jesus in hell before he resurrected? So for those three days, what's your view of that? Um, no, I don't believe he was in hell. Now, here, boy, that's going to get into another okay. uh, thing of what is hell. I don't. Uh, I have a. You mentioned the book "What in Hell Is Going On." Um, I discussed the idea of hell in terms of their honor shame view. I don't view hell as a place. I view it as more like a uh, a state or a relationship uh, to God. Uh, so someone who is quote, in hell is not in a particular place. They just don't have access to God. So I can't really say that Jesus was, quote, in hell, because I don't think it was a particular place. Uh, but I, you know, I do believe that there was some, you know, he, he, he did go to a particular place to uh, preach to the spirits, so to speak, or it's actually the fallen spirits. But, that, but no, not, not hell particularly. You wouldn't call it hell. Interesting. Well, I'd love to have you back on to talk about Hitler's Christianity. That sounds very... I've done... I read Hitler's psychological profile so people can see the whole seven parts under my podcast. So it, his psychological profile is very interesting. His <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Wow. So, but again, uh, delighted to have you. Thanks for sharing all that information. Again, the author's name is JP Holding, H O L D I N G. Title of the book is Defending the Resurrection Did Jesus Rise, Rise from the Dead? And the website, which I will put in the show notes, is www.tectonics.org. So, JP Holding, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you for having me, William. All right. All right take care. Take care. Bye-bye. God bless. Stay there. Stay there.